The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Upgrading the VOD SOS Management Toolkit Guidance for Effective Diagnostic Confirmation, Grading, and Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GBV860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. I'm Nelson Chow. I'll moderate this with Christine Duncan. All right, so uh, we're going to look at the scope of the problem. VOD has been reported up to 20% of patients after transplant. The mortality rates of VOD, especially those with multi-organ dysfunction, can be greater than 80%. And the most common cause of death after this is multi-organ dysfunction. The pathophysiology really is a multi-step process, which leads to sinusoidal narrowing blockage. And this is a theme, I think, that we'll see more and more going forward, which is that much of what we do within transplant is injuring the endothelium. And as we understand more of the endothelium and the specialized endothelium that we have in different parts of our body, I think we'll be able to understand the pathophysiology better, as well as understanding and, and, and improving the outcome. So you can imagine that the first step, of course, is inflammation, which is what the radiation chemotherapy is doing. So there's toxic metabolites and cytokines. You damage hepatocytes and the endothelial cells. You upregulate adhesion molecules. With that, there's a lot of heparinase that's released, which uh, damages the cytoskeletal architecture, which breaks down the endothelial cell scaffolding. This leads to uh, gap formations within the endothelium with leakage and sinusoidal narrowing. And then there is dissection of the endothelial cells and embolization. All this leads at the simultaneously to activation of coagulation pathways with increased expression of von Willebrand factor, von Willebrand factor platelet aggregation, release of tissue factor because of this injury, and uh, plasminogen-activated inhibitor 1, prothrombotic and fibrinolytic state, hypofibrinolytic state, and then you get fibrin deposit clot formation and the clot then blocks the sinusoids. And the cascade events, which results in this organ dysfunction, begins very early on with this endothelial cell damage, which activates these uh, endothelial cells and damages these cells. These lead to inflammatory changes and structural changes. The clot, the clot leads to the clinical manifestation and symptoms and signs of this disease. And then depending on where this clotting and this damage is occurs, it leads to the multi-organ dysfunction that we'll talk about. And obviously, not everybody progresses onto this multi-organ dysfunction or death. So we're talking about tools of the trade and clinical uh, consult sessions. So I'll pass this to Christy. Uh, thank you, and thanks for everyone for joining our session today. So we want to work through two clinical cases, one a pediatric and one of an adult patient. So the first is of Kevin, a 59-year-old man who presents with relapsed refractory ALL, who receives um, inotuzumab therapy, achieves a CR, has a performance score of one, and is preparing for allotransplant. So for this patient and for the pediatric patient I'm going to mention, let's think about what their risks are. So just looking at those things, what, what risks are you thinking about? And for the pediatricians in the room, uh, so we have Liam, who is a two-year-old boy with stage M high-grade neuroblastoma. He received four cycles of induction chemotherapy two, and then two cycles of chemotherapy, chemoimmunotherapy with arenotecan, temozolomide, dintuximab, and surgical resection. 
the intent is for him to proceed to a tandem transplant. Um, so the question is, what are these patients' risks for VOD? So we know of some risks that are, are modifiable or potentially modifiable. And so related, these risks listed will give you a higher risk for VOD. So allogeneic stem cell transplant, receiving a second transplant, myeloblative conditioning regimen, um, non-T-cell graft, unrelated donor with mismatch, um, oral or high-dose busulfan chemotherapy, or TBI, and graft-versus-host disease with uh, the, the regimens listed. Um, I always think when I see this, it's kind of interesting because we call these things modifiable risks. But if someone needs an allo transplant, it's, it's certainly modifiable, but not necessarily uh, avoidable. So one thing to think about really in our modern therapies are how antibody drug conjugate therapy can increase your risk for VOD. So in those risk factors, we see things that are listed with a three to 10 times high risk. So increased recipient age, and these are unmodifiable, hyperferritinemia, prior liver disease, having CMV cellular positivity, uh, certain underlying disorders. So we've listed CML, immunodeficiencies, and thalassemia. But in the pediatric world, we know we also see quite a bit of neuroblastoma and some of our rare metabolic diseases as well at higher risk. Uh, the use of acyclovir prior to transplant. Uh, the use of parenteral nutrition. Certain genetic factors, and this is an area we're learning more about. Sepsis. And then at the bottom, again, pediatric-specific conditions. But there are things that confer a much higher risk. And so for greater than 10 times, the increased risk would be an elevated bilirubin before transplant, prior gemtuzumab or inotuzumab therapy, and prior Norris syndrome. One thing that our fellows and our residents often ask about some of the prophylaxis agents we use and what is the data, because there's so much of our supportive care that doesn't um, have data to support or we have its institutional experience. So I think a slide like this is really helpful. Um, and so this is a meta-analysis looking at the use of ursodiol prior to transplant. And just to orient ourselves, boxes to the left indicate a lower risk of VOD, and as it crosses over the black line would be a higher risk. So what we can see in the study, actually even just looking right down the middle, is pretty convincing to me. It's showing data showing that there is a decrease, decreased risk of VOD when ursodiol is used. And because of this, ursodiol was included in the European guidelines for prophylaxis. And following up on the thought of prophylaxis or trying to prevent VOD, we can think about the use of defibrotide. Um, so there was an EBMT randomized trial that was pediatric-specific and enrolled a large number of patients. There was 356 pediatric patients, 65% allogeneic, and 31% autologous. The median age in the population was about 6 years, 6.6 .6 years. And defibrotide, compared to supportive care, showed a decreased incidence of VOD. VOD with renal failure, so not just preventing it, but preventing the real ser serious VOD um, and decreased incidence of graft-versus-host disease. And based on these data, defibrotide was included in the European guidelines for prophylaxis as well. That experience wasn't mirrored in the phase three defibrotide versus standard of care study for preventing VOD. And so we can look at these slides, and that on the left is a VOD-free VOD survival probability and you could see in the patients who received prophylaxis and those who did not, no significant difference. And in the second, and that was at 30 days, and in the second curve, looking at day 100. So the question is why, um, why wasn't there a difference? And can we learn something more from that trial? Does that just mean it doesn't work? Uh, there are caveats when thinking about this. So there were no differences in the outcome, but the trial was conducted many years after the original um, treatments, the original observation, and the instance of VOD has become lower. 
Um, and some of the toxicities that we see are decreased with different conditioning regimens. The other issue may have been that the adult incidence is lower compared to children, and in this study, children and adults were both enrolled. All of that indicating that perhaps the sample size wasn't large enough because of a decreased incidence and that mixed population to reproduce the results in the pediatric-specific trial. Okay, so coming back to our case. Um, So now things have moved. Um, What we think, so for Kevin, our our gentleman um, with relapsed ALL, Based on data, he has an elevated risk due to his age, prior inotuzumab therapy, and the receipt of an allogeneic stem cell transplant. For a pediatric patient, um, he has increased risk associated with a tandem transplant. And then there's a question now about antibody therapy. And some of our neuroblastoma patients are getting antibody therapy prior to transplant. In some cases, we've seen increased incidence, but this is something that we're still trying um, to understand. Okay, let's fast forward a little bit. So the patient receives his allo transplant, and at day 10, after transplant, he has 5% weight gain, refractory thrombocytopenia, and right upper quadrant pain, but a normal bilirubin. For a pediatric patient, he has his tandem transplant, and during the second transplant, he has, he's readmitted on day 38 with increased respiratory rate, abdominal distension, enlarged liver, 12% weight gain, elevated bilirubin, and he has an ultrasound performed, which confirms ascites and shows reversal of flow in the portal veins. For each of these patients, I would ask you to just consider whether you believe that they have VOD at this point and whether you would make that diagnosis. And if you're uncertain, how could you confirm a diagnosis? So it is an important question because when we, what we know is that if we treat or undiagnose VOD can lead to a poor prognosis and poor post-transplant outcome. So this is, again, work coming from the EBMT looking at data from allotransplant patients reported to have died from multi-organ failure in the EBMT EBMT registry. The results of this study showed that in multivariate analysis, a history of hepatic comorbidities or gemtuzumab um, and disease status beyond CR1 were significant predictive factors for VOD. So the, the reinforcing our knowledge about risk factors for disease. What's interesting, though, is that VOD-related multi-organ failure was widely underreported and ended up accounting for 20% of the deaths attributed to multi-organ failure of unknown origin without a previous VOD diagnosis. So to review the the signs and symptoms of VOD, we have the right upper quadrant pain that you'll see when you examine your patient, hepatomegaly, weight gain, ascites, jaundice, shortness of breath, tachypnea, and decreased urine output. In your laboratory values, you can expect to see elevated transaminases, hyperbilirubinemia, coagulopathies evidenced by a prolonged PT, um, low albumin, renal dysfunction indicated by elevated creatinine, decreased GFR, um, and poor oxygen saturation. Um, just one comment about this, because I know we are a mixed audience of adults and pediatric patients. They may present very differently in pediatric patients who are smaller, have smaller reserve, and have more pulmonary symptoms uh, early. So we would advise or request or ask you to think and be prepared about late-onset VOD. I think many of us um, were classically trained that VOD happens before day 21, and then maybe our minds stop thinking about it a little bit after that. But based on prior guidelines, and we'll talk about those, we know that late VOD does exist. And so our case study, the patient had VOD at day 38. And so if we walk through that transplant timeline from the admission to the discharge, we do expect to see most VOD or many VODs occur within 30 days, but they can occur later. So we just ask you to keep that on your differential diagnosis. Um, as, you, as you're taking care of a sick patient, even one who may have been discharged and ends up getting readmitted to the hospital. 
we can review the classic criteria for VOD diagnosis. So the McDonald and Jones criteria or modified Seattle and, modif- and Boston, uh, Baltimore, excuse me, criteria. These rely heavily um, on three things, which is nice in their simplicity, but we've learned may not be um, applicable to all patients. So in the modified Seattle, you have to have greater than two events within 20 days of transplant. So early time post transplant. We expect to see hyperbilirubinemia, hepatomegaly, right upper quadrant pain, and sudden weight gain. This is contrasted with the Jones criteria that has a time limit of 21 days, and again, similar criteria. So limitations, really, as I've just mentioned, are one of them is that it's only up to day 21 post-transplant. It requires hyperbilirubinemia, which we know that there are cases of anecteric um, VOD. It doesn't capture recent clinical descriptions of VOD, and it doesn't include newer imaging that may be sensitive or specific indicators. I know at many centers, you don't have VOD until you have ultrasound findings. And so I think trying to figure out how to balance that with the criteria has been, has been challenging. So this is um, a, a full slide, but a very important slide. So EVMT criteria uh, were revised and specifically targeted pediatric and adult patients to trying to start to think about our patients differently. And so the additions or the modifications that were made to these criteria um, the things that I personally like is that you are allowed to have, you don't have to have every single one of these things to meet your diagnos- diagnosis. So in pediatric criteria, we can think about unexplained consumptive and transfusion refractory thrombocytopenia. And you could say, you know, they're, they're not engrafted. You know, those platelets are low. How do I know it's that? But I think anyone who's taking care of patients on the floor, you know when someone's getting platelets more often than you would expect, more often than the other patients. So to think about that child, you may need to, you know, transfuse multiple times a day or transfuse every day. Otherwise, unexplained weight gain on three consecutive days, despite the use of diuretics, hepatomegalyositis, and increased bilirubin. The adult criteria, um, similar as well, having two of the following criteria or the bilirubin, so the classic day 21. Um, and this was then broken down into a late onset VOD. So you can look at these um, in two different frames and think about the patients. I should say with a pediatric patient, there does appear to be greater incidence of late onset VOD. And so there's no time limit on, on that diagnostic criteria. Uh, the criteria were going to arise to address some um, of these, and these are, uh, came out of um, the U.S. and Dr. Cairo and others have worked on this, again, trying to get those same things but allowing options. So having any two of the following, elevated bilirubinemia, unexplained weight gain, excessive platelet transfusions, consistent refractory, um, right upper quadrant pain. And this addresses the limitations relating to imaging. So having reversal of portal flow by Doppler ultrasound although it's worth noting that's also a late stage, um, a late sign. And so hopefully we're not catching people that late. Or any one of the following, hepatic biopsy consistent with VOD or unexplained elevated wedge pressure. So getting back to our cases, um, and day plus 10 in our adult patient, he had 5% weight gain, refractory cytopenia, right upper quadrant pain, but a normal billy. The weight gain, right upper quadrant pain, um, and refractory pain do establish, based on criteria, meet those criteria for VOD despite the anecteric status. So if there's, you know, some of the things that I'd like you to, I hope that you can take from this is to think about it, even if your billy's not high. Subsequent Doppler ultrasound showed reversal of flow in the portal veins. In our pediatric patient, looking at our second bullet, the hyperbilirubinemia, ascites, and reversal of flow confirmed the late onset of VOD at day 38. The next question that we'll address is how can we characterize the severity of VOD in each of these cases? Um, I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Chow. Thank you. So 
this is a question. How do we know this is severe or not? So in the case of Kevin, he's got the confirmed diagnosis of VOD, and now he also has acute kidney injury. His creatinine has doubled from his baseline. He's got decreased urine output. In the pediatric case, uh, Liam's got pulmonary insufficiency with hypoxemia and increase in uh, oxygen requirements. So when we think about these multi-organ dysfunctions, I want you to think back to to this issue we talked about earlier, which is a lot of the underlying pathology of this disease and many of the diseases we see in transplant is this endothelial cell injury. And as it turns out, the endothelium, these cells which line the blood vessels, are remarkably different depending on which um, organ they're in. So it's not uniform. The endothelial cells which line our brain capillaries is very, very different from the cells that align the gut or the kidneys or the liver. So when you think about other organs, renal dysfunction is important. Um, and these can be measured by urine output, creatinine, clearance, uh, and clearly, obviously, if they need dialysis. And pulmonary dysfunction is also something to keep in mind with infiltrates, effusion, requirement for uh, supplemental oxygen with drop in O2 sats and ventilator dependence, or if they have a lot of ascites, they can have uh, difficulties with breathing because of the abdominal uh, swelling. And the key issue here is if you start to see multi-organ dysfunction, your patient is, your patient is in big trouble with uh, 84% overall mortality. So when you think about grading, the limitations in the past was we never really talked about the organ. It was you know high bilirubin and ascites and weight gain. And we really didn't have a very good definition of what mild to moderate was. It really was always on the eye of the beholder of the physician taking care of that patient. And this grading depends on the resolution before day 100 or death. And most of this data was retrospective in nature. So using the CTCAE grading uh, of adverse uh, events in the, in the SOS syndrome, we now are able to use this grading uh, looking at severe hepatic injury by the grade uh, of uh, basically zero to five, depending on the bilirubin. So the bilirubin splits between grade three and four, depending on whether it's two to five, greater than five, or life-threatening. And looking at this multi-organ grading, you can have hepatic renal pulmonary dysfunction based on the probability or directly attributed to VOD. So the measurements of, uh, of the hepatic function by looking at bilirubin or liver function test, portal hypertension, ascites, uh, and cardiac failure, weight gain compared to baseline, and especially looking at the renal and the pulmonary um, the toxicities. So in the CTCAE, if you look at the bilirubin, that is divided into one through four, depending on the level of bilirubin of less than of greater than 1.5 to 3 to 3 to 10 and greater than 10. And fluid weight gain is also divided into less than 10%, 10 to 20, greater than 20. And ascites is also broken down into grades, looking at uh, no ascites to severe ascites requiring intervention to life-threatening consequences. The renal, likewise, looking at creatinine, Greater than 1.5 to 3 is grade 2. Greater than 3 to 6 is grade 3. And greater than 6 um, is grade 4. 
And pulmonary is divided into decrease O2 sat with exercise, which is grade two, decrease O2 sat at rest is grade three, and life-threatening is grade four. So these allow us to now um, look at this grading in a numerical way to actually ascribe whether that VOD finding is moderate, mild, or mild, moderate, or severe. So going back to our case with Kevin, he has acute kidney injury with a rise in CRAN and decreased urine output with a VOD uh, that was confirmed and now clearly has uh, it's a second organ hit with the kidney. Liam, again, has pulmonary insufficiency with a drop in his O2 sats, confirmed VOD with pulmonary dysfunction. So with these findings then, what do we do next in terms of timing and what therapy? So one of the, the joys of, of, of taking care of these patients is really the interprofessional and the multidisciplinary care team that we have with the advanced providers, the pharmacists, the nurses, the dietitians, uh, the critical care folks we need, the psychosocial support, pain management, uh, and then obviously the supportive um, consultants we can use if we need them. And it really does take a whole team to take care of these patients. And in many ways, a lot of the early detection um, prodding comes from both bedside nurses and the APP, which are attuned to these um, subtle changes which can happen uh, fairly early in the course post-transplant. So what are the current recommended options for managing? Uh, the treatment options are uh, defibrotide, which is FDA-approved for the adult and pediatric patients with hepatic VOD and with renal and pulmonary dysfunction, or with renal or pulmonary dysfunction after transplant. And the standard supportive care we've always used before defibrotide was available was diuretics, fluid salt restriction, paracentesis if necessary, hemofiltration, and mechanical ventilation. So looking at what led to this idea that the defibrotide would work was looking at the historical data at survival of day 100 of the patients who were treated versus a historical control group. Uh, and this is data um, uh, by Paul Richardson uh, back many years ago now, showing that there's a significant improvement in survival um, with the use of the prismatide, a much higher rate of complete remission, and really not a significant uh, hemorrhagic risk. The fibrotide is isolated from um, uh, porcine uh, uh, intestinal cells, and it does have a mild anticoagulation uh, effect. And you can see from uh, the probability of uh, survival that there was an advantage with the use of defibrotide. There's also this uh, treatment of investigational new drug study, which is uh, looking at 1,154 1, patients enrolled at 101 U.S. centers who received uh, more than one or more defibrotide dose after transplant uh, with uh, this diagnosis of VOD. Uh, the dosing was uh, the standard dosing, which was 25 milligrams per kilo a day for four doses for more than 21 days, for 21 or more than 21 days, and looking at estimated survival. And the, the estimated day 100 survival was almost 60%, but clearly a major difference if you had multi-organ dysfunction versus no multi-organ dysfunction. So obviously, if you don't have organ damage, then you would certainly have a chance of doing much better.
This is effective both in adult and pediatric patients. This is breaking down um, between the kids and the, the adults, and you can see the children do much better if they have the OD. Um, without multi-organ dysfunction, the probability of survival is quite high compared to those who do have multi-organ dysfunction. Uh, the same as in adults, obviously, the overall improvement on the adult side is, is less good as in the kids. There was a second uh, study done in France looking at the real-world data to look at the efficacy and safety of defibrotide post-transplant. And this is among patients receiving defibrotide um, uh, in France, showing again that the severe, very se the severe, severe and very severe, and the very severe all improved with uh, uh, the use of defibrotide. And this is data which again supports the use of this um, uh, early in, in the onset of the disease. So you want, if you can, to try to treat these patients before they end up on dialysis, obviously, or before they end up intubated. So these actually reflect what was seen from the clinical trials. This is a different study looking at single-center retrospective cohort of 28 patients with VOD or SOS following stem cell transplant. Uh, and these patients started defibrotide at the, uh, the day that they were diagnosed. So using this new criteria, um, trying to diagnose these patients very early. They had complete resolution of VOD in 75%, which was really quite high if you think about the Retrospective data with defibrotide, the CR rate was in the mid-30s. 100-day survival was 64% for all patients and 53% for those with severe VOD SOS. Uh, and the response rates were similar whether they had myeloblative or reduced intensity. So the, the gist of this article was to, to push early diagnosis, to start defibrotide early, uh, to try to minimize the dosing interruptions if you can so that you can successfully treat this problem. And I think over the course of probably 20 years now, uh, looking at both sort of prospectively uh, analyzed data and in looking at retrospective data, there's multiple reports suggesting that initiation of defibrotide very early, close to the diagnosis of this disease, is, is associated with better income, outcome. So if we think about HCT happening here, you have the diagnosis of VOD. And starting this within two days of the diagnosis is associated with better survival than starting it in three or more days after the diagnosis. So there are practical indications for this. It is, unfortunately, given four times a day. It is infused. So patients end up being hospitalized for long periods of time for this. There is hypersensitivity, and if these patients are hypersensitive to this, you cannot use it anymore. Bleeding is a problem, as I mentioned earlier. It is a mild anticoagulant, so if you, uh, a patient has some bleeding, you can hold it, and you can consider restarting it once the bleeding has resolved and the patient is stable. If the patient re-bleeds, obviously, you should probably stop the drug. And you can take these patients to intensive monitoring uh, with biopsies or catheter placements if you stop the drug for two hours and you can restart it back. So what happened to Kevin? Well, Kevin has this confirmed diagnosis 10 days after the transplant. He gets uh, the supportive care with both diuretics and 
uh, CRT, and he starts the fibrotide. He responds within 21 days, and the ultrasound confirms response. Liam also has a confirmed diagnosis of late onset BOD with pulmonary dysfunction. Uh, he was uh, transferred to the ICU but did not need intubation. Uh, peritoneal drain, diuretics, blood products, had the fibrotide, and then gradually improved over the next seven days with resolution within two weeks. So in summary, what we hope to convey was the pathophysiology of this disease is the cascade of inflammatory events with endothelial cell damage and activation leading to leak in the sinusoidal area, which then lead to clot formation and the obstruction. This happens obviously fairly early on if it's going to happen. The damage happens most likely from the preparatory regimen. And so there's ongoing damage. And so the earlier you can make this diagnosis, and if you think about what Christy mentioned earlier about the the factors which make us think about the diagnosis, you don't have to wait till the bilirubin is elevated. And so I think increased vigilance and thinking about these factors is really important, leading to the early diagnosis of this. Uh, We have improved on the grading. So, you know, if we get to... um, severe, before they get to very severe, the outcome should be better. And then obviously early initiation of of drug may um, seems to be quite helpful. And then augmenting the supportive care clearly uh, is important. Great. Thank you. Christian, happy to be here to take questions or things we didn't make clear. Uh, the first one is, how long do you recommend to continue ursodiol prophylaxis with several studies looking at numbers, but 90 to 100 is what the literature shows? It's a good question. At our center, um, this is based on our practice, we continue the ursodiol basically as long as we can. Um, but as you're starting to get someone ready to go to discharge, you leave the hospital, we'll, we won't discharge them home with a prescription. And that maybe is something we need to rethink in certain patient populations. But on average, I would say it's probably about close to 21 days. Um, one of the other things about ursodiol, I think those of us who use it, it's an oral med, so that can be a little tricky in the pediatric population. And so our mantra is always as much as you can, as long as you can, but knowing that that may not always be feasible throughout the course. Yeah, I would say we do basically the same thing. Do you treat the entire recommended time with defrupatide? If patient syndrome is improved, do you consider stopping early? That's a good question. Um, so we don't always. So I think we, at my center, just to explain our practice a little bit, we are we treat very early. We're quite um, we'll try to be proactive about that. And so sometimes if the patient develops not severe VOD but has mild VOD, uh, we will stop sooner. Particularly if you're getting ready to get discharged or if there's other considerations. So we try to do 21 days, but it's often less than that. Yeah, I, I would agree. So I think this is a very important question. It, it is. Uh, it is hard to keep patients who are otherwise okay at that point in the hospital 21 days, especially if they've responded. Uh, and so sometimes we will shorten the treatment, although I will caution that sometimes the bilic starts to go back up again, and then you have to restart. So it's always a, a difficult decision, and it sort of depends on how well the patient is doing. Yes. Thank you for this presentation. Um, I wonder if you can comment on drains for ascites or pleural effusions. Early in the course, later, first try diuretics? 
Yeah, so we, we, we don't commonly use drains if we can avoid it. I think putting a hole in a patient with a piece of plastic in, in general is, is a risk. So we try very hard to avoid it. We do taps if we had to, um, but try to avoid drains. There are some patients where you just can't tap them every day because they're accumulating pretty quickly, and there we might put a drain in, but we really try to avoid it. You know, I think this this may be, I know there's so much institutional variation, which is why it's so good to have these exchanges. Um, we tend to be a very drain-forward program, I guess, if you will. Um, and for us, it's often based on other symptoms. And this is maybe a pediatric versus adult difference in that the abdominal competition that you may have on the lungs is causing difficulty. Or the pediatric patients, if you're looking at decreased urine output and you're worried about even in abdominal compartment syndrome, we tend to place them very um, relatively early. Obviously, you have to have your, um, uh, for, we use our interventional radiology, has to be willing to do that. And so we have lots of discussion. And I think that's another important point is to have ongoing discussion with your supportive team. So with radiology, making sure people are understanding sort of where we are. We put those drains in. And one of the things that, that I've learned over time is that once it's in, unless it's mechanically dislodged or other things, it's likely going to be there for, for quite some time for your duration. Because even as your VOD is resolving, if the drain is there and open, they still will have, have fluid. Um, one thing just of caution, especially in the young patients, so pediatrics, for those who are pediatricians, the neuroblastoma patients are on average three to four years old, so less young kids. And when that drain is in, if it's left open, there's an immediate sort of pressure that's released, and you can lose a huge amount a fluid quickly. And so as tempting as it is to take out a liter of fluid from a little one, if you do that, you'll have fluid shifts and can really run the risk of hypotension or significant problems from that. So I would just advise caution with that and trying to resist the temptation to get all the fluid off. Because if you're right in the middle of VOD, that fluid is going to reaccumulate very quickly and you may have put the patient at some hemodynamic instability um, during that time. There are guidelines or there was um, treatment recommendations that came from the Polisi Group, which is a pediatric acute lung injury and sepsis network, about actually um, how quickly to do that and how safely that can be done. So I think the lead author is um, Chris Mahadeo, M-A-H-D-E-O, and I'm happy to reach out to anyone with those because I found those very helpful, especially when uh, sorry, speaking with our intensive care unit or other places where they may have a little less familiarity um, with the process. So chest tubes we do not nearly as often because I find Often, if you relieve some of the abdominal pressure, you may not have quite the same um, same issue, but it's not uncommon for us to have patients with both. Yes. Um, hi, Parinda Mehta from Cincinnati. Um, I echo the same uh, thing. I think we have to be really cautious, and uh, the program and the experts, uh, ICU experts or other experts, should be familiar with it. Otherwise, we may cause more harm with the drains than than help. Um, my others, um, this is what uh, we do. And my, uh, my question to both of you was, what was your opinion on early CRRT? I think that's, again, a place where just like um, if somebody did a study, they would see that if you did the CRRT started sooner rather than later, we would definitely improve outcomes for these VOD patients. And I, I'm a believer, but I wanted to see what you guys think. So uh, that's a great question. I um, was in a grant review for Leukemia Lymphoma Society where somebody had proposed this trial of using CRT for this. Um, and I've been waiting to see that we, we, th this 
I review this and another reviewer, both of us were very enthusiastic about this grant got funded. I've been waiting to see this data and I haven't seen it yet. So I think that there probably is a benefit to the kidneys healing faster if they don't have to continue to work and, and fix the damage at the same time. I think it's such a good question. We've had similar experience. I think and many, some of you may run up against this as well. We have to convince our nephrologist that this is the indication and that we shouldn't be waiting for renal failure or other things, but it can be really tricky to get them to do that point. I would love to see that data. I think that'd be amazing because it, it's a concept that works in us, not just in you know, VOD, but I think the overarching principle is when you have patients who have severe complications of transplant, earlier intervention tends to be better. So just to, to go off topic a slight bit, when we th- or even for the patients of respiratory failure, you know, we've seen from the intensive care unit transplant consortium that if you intubate earlier, it is better for your outcomes. If you treat things earlier, waiting to see if someone gets better very rarely seems to be the right answer in our world, though I don't know of any data with a CRT yet. Please. Donna Salzman from Birmingham. I'm not a pediat- pediatrician, but my question is, is y'all do a lot more tandem and or mm-hmm. more transplant. So if your child got VOD with the first transplant responded very, very well. Would you proceed with the second transplant, perhaps with prophylaxis? Such a good question. And this, and this certainly does come up. It comes up with the neuroblastoma patients. It comes up with some of our um, brain tumor patients because that goal is transplant because the diseases are so difficult. And so it depends. The answer sort of depends. And so on patients who are treated on some trials, we have taken patients off a trial because based on that criteria, they may not have gotten their second transplant because of the VOD. In that setting, we would, our institutional practice would give defibrotide. And if that patient had improved, I think that that'd be a very reasonable thing to do. Um, We always, I think the important thing in that case is to be as transparent and open with the parents and, you know, as much as you can to say that sort of what the unknown risks are. Even if it was mild this time, does it come back? Um, We have not had, I'm trying to think of patients who've had VOD in the second where it's returned, and we're in the first where it's returned. And it doesn't happen that often. It may be because we select someone who did very well, had very mild, and you're prophylaxing. Uh, but there is, there's discussion and debate sort of in the pediatric world as well. Should we prophylax everyone who's going to have a second, tra- have a tandem transplant? Maybe that's too much. Or is there something we should do different for these unique populations? Um, and I do know that some centers were prophylax even just based on diagnosis. So we see most of our, our neuroblast, most VOD in our neuroblastoma patients, but there are other rare diseases. So osteoporosis is a rare disease of pediatrics and others where some people will just prophylax off the bat because of that. that. So I think it's possible. You just have to make sure that they're recovered and stable and that the family is aware of the risk. Um, and just to conclude with that, I think the family, unless they had severe VOD, is always more afraid of the neuroblastoma recurring than, than VOD and sort of, you know, we'll get you through this is more the um, sort of the practice if you can. Thank you. So Christy, this is one for you. Okay. Does anecteric status have any relationship to the severity of symptoms? That is a great question. So the question is anecteric. So I, you know, we've had, I, I've certainly taken care of patients, young patients, infants for some reason in our institution seem to be uh, the patients who have more of the anecteric. I have not noticed a direct correlation. I'm not sure if you have either between the severity and and the lower bilirubin. I think um, there may be something there, but it also may just be that we do not have sufficient data to know yet. Um, 
I found that the, the infants, when they do that, they often do tend to have more mild disease anyway. So I, I'm not sure. It's a good question. Yeah, because on the adult side, we have not really used this parameter very often. Most of the adult side still stuck on the Jones or the, uh, the Baltimore or the uh, Seattle criteria, which needs a belly ribbon greater than two. So I think we're starting to use this criteria of, of calling it VOD even without a belly ribbon elevation. Uh, one of the questions is, do you always recommend confirming the diagnosis with ultrasound? Or are there scenarios where you would proceed without it? So what I would say is that ultrasound is really simple to see reversal flow if you can get it. I do think that the the calling of that is really dependent on the ultrasonographer. And it's not always um, an easy call. And there are new technologies coming looking at the, the stiffness of the liver, which sometimes might be very helpful. But it's one of the, one of the um, measurements that's useful. Finding it or not finding it really doesn't change if you have other parameters. I think that's our experience as well. We, it's, for, it's easy for us to get one, but I wouldn't necessarily wait um, you know, to treat or other things. And I think one thing that uh, is just worth remembering as well is that the reversal of flow is a, is a late finding. You can often see sort of gallbladder sludge or other changes, even mineral ascites, when you do that early. So on occasion, we've had patients where you have your ultrasound and then you redo it again, like re-ultrasound two or three days later, and they're pretty significantly different. So I think the thing that I always really try to work with our fellows, our team, ourselves, is we don't have to wait for reversal flow. And if you are waiting to then, you're probably waiting a little bit too long. And so getting ultrasounds, getting them often, but I don't think you have to, obviously. Another question is, does the proximity of onetuzumab use have an impact on the risk of developing VOD? So probably yes, um, but we don't really know because most of the, I would say most, if not all the time, onetuzumab is used just as a way to get them to transplant. So I don't know that's any data if somebody have gotten inotuzumab six months ago. Probably timing is important. So if you had inotuzumab as part of your therapy for ALL, you know, if, if the trials are, are positive that you can use ino in the front line and you relapse three years later and go to transplant, that may not convey the same risk as if you had it two months ago. That's it. Uh, is there a role for diferbitide in, uh, in, uh, associated thrombotic microangiopathy? So it's a great question. Uh, you know, if you think about pathophysiology, in my view, this, the, the, the TMA and, uh, VOD, SOS, GVH is probably all a reflection on the endothelial cell injury as a component of that. So in theory, protecting it should be quite useful. I think TMA suffers from the same problem as VOD suffers from, which is definition. Uh, you know, when you have severe TMA, it's not subtle. And it's probably not that hard to diagnose. When you have early TMA changes uh, that you can look in retrospect and say, oh, you know, we should have called this earlier, that's pretty subtle, just like, you know, picking up very early VOD. So I think it's somewhat difficult to be sure how to do that trial, but there is a lot of interest in that. And I think, um, so Chris DeVork and Christine Hingham and UCSF are, are looking into this and they're trying to develop um, a study and looking at those outcomes. So I think it is something that following on just the general concept of endothelial injury makes, um, makes sense and it's worth, hopefully we can get more data. Please. Hi, Tristan Knight in uh, Seattle. Um, 
that actually, that exact point about Defibrotide for uh, VOD actually came up on Twitter. We were having a conversation about it. And the consensus was that there's um, maybe a heightened risk of hemorrhagic complications when you have, you know, VOD plus TMA and trying Defibrotide because maybe there is an interaction, maybe there's not. Um, obviously, there's no evidence either way. Um, but I was just curious about thoughts about the bleeding risk with the combination Defibrotide, VOD, TMA constellation, if you will. Yeah, so I would say that we have no data to, to drive that. I do think, so the bleeding risk for Defibrotide with VOD alone is not that increased. It's really not that much of a problem. If you had TMA into it, um, you could imagine it, it certainly could be higher, but I don't think there's any clear data. Please. One more question. Would you comment on the role of steroids in early VOD? At least in pediatric studies, there are, there are some evidence that it helps. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, that, that does hit on the practice variation as well. We haven't used that at our center. I think sometimes we're concerned about toxicity or side effects of steroids, but I know that other centers have done that and do it routinely. I don't know of great data to support it, but that does not mean it's not effective, certainly in some patients. So we have used it and we've published the data and that is, um, and more even over years, um, that is really for a very, very early questionable when we are not sure, but again, we want to act sooner rather than later kind of a situation and also weighing the risk and the benefit of what are the other risk of bleeding, additional risk of bleeding in the patient. And can we buy another day, do the ultrasound, but use steroids in the interim? That's the phase we are in right now, but we are moving more and more towards early defibriotide. Thank you. I apologize. Thank you for reminding me. I do, have, do recall seeing that. I know you all do great work, so I'll revisit it again. Uh, here we go. Do you ever use lower defibrotide doses in pediatric patients? Oh, we don't. We use the same dosing schedule. I know at this meeting, um, Dr. Cairo even presented an abstract about trying to do dose escalation. So if anyone's interested in that, um, you can certainly look that up by, by Mitch Cairo, but it's the same dosing. I think one of the pediatric-specific challenges sometimes we have is access. And so patients come in with a double lumen central line, and then they're having even just for um, uh, trying even just for prophylaxis, trying to give the every four hour meds. Sometimes patients end up with another pick line or something else because of that. And certainly when they go to the ICU, they get multiple. So just if you are to use prophylaxis, you're planning to use prophylaxis, it's worth trying to think about how you're going to manage all the different access points in your patient because um, it can be challenging. Um, how often are you in calorie laid onset VOD? You know, we don't see it in pediatric, we certainly see it, but we don't see it very frequently. I think. Um, out of all of our cases of VOD, it is probably 15% of the time in, in our practice. And that depends if you're talking to after day 30 or where you are. So not often. And it's pretty rare for us to see it after a patient gets discharged. And that may just be our practice of keeping patients in until, until they're ready to go. It's certainly, um, you know, we'll, we'll watch that. I think as we see changes in neuroblastoma therapy and other therapies, we may see it different, but not very frequently. So the, another question, do you routinely use any prophylaxis with a patient at high risk for VOD? And so what? So for the adults, if we have somebody who just got on a tuzumab, uh, we will try to get the furbitite for them as prophylaxis. We do try to, of those who have very high risk that we think, you know, 
what Christy showed earlier, there's a tenfold higher risk of VOD. We will try to get the drug if we can. Yeah, and that's, that's our practice as well in patients who are higher risk for the reasons mentioned, if they've had a second transplant, for many other things. And we, that's up to, obviously, the physician discretion. We don't have something that we all do. But we have used um, routinely based on some of the risk factors listed and then some of the other clinical things that make you think um, that they may have a higher risk as well. So another question was, was there any real-world difference in the sensitivity of the newer diagnostic criteria that we presented? So that criteria is new. It's new, like six months new, so we don't really have any real-world data. I think the hope is that we will be able to regenerate going forward is, is the um, recognition that, that these patients are developing VOD and to start treating early. Um, in your opinion, any major differences in the U.S. and EU practice for prophylaxis and treatment? Well, I think, you know, it seems, and I, I apologize if I speak ill or incorrectly about the European experience, I think the adoption of the guidelines for the prophylaxis is quite a significant difference, and so I'm not sure how uniformly adopted that is. I think in the pediatrics in, in the U.S., it's highly varied, so some centers can do that, some can't. It's not always easy. So I happen um, to work at a center where it's very easy for us to get to Fibertide, but I know there are centers where you have to go before committees, get approvals, other things to do that, and so perhaps that's part of the issue. Um, but beyond that, there is probably great heterogeneity, I imagine, about ursodiol and other support, other um, prophylaxis. But I suspect that there's greater use based on those EBMT guidelines in Europe. So the other question here is, are there any difference in type of prophylaxis you might recommend in peas versus adults? I think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think the current prophylaxis, I think, is pretty pretty similar. Yes. Hi there, Carmen Bonfim from Curitiba, Brazil. Hi, Nelson. <laughs> Hi. Uh, Nelson, how do you use the fibrotype when you have like an obese a child or obese patient? Uh, what's the dose uh, for the obese patient? It's always, you know, that's such an amazing question. I think we think about that always with chemotherapy. Should you dose adjust? Should you use the adjusted body weight? What should you be doing? We haven't dose adjusted based on, on obesity, and so we'll use the standard same dosing. I'm not sure if others have done, and I don't know if anyone's looked at it, which is a, it is a really interesting question. Yeah, on the adult side, we don't dose adjust either. We use the 25 mg per kick. Yeah, because sometimes they gain so much weight, and then you, you yeah. like, uh, more days. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, we, I, will, I will just back up. Sometimes we will often, though, look at their admission weight, or their that, yeah. so the prior to the weight gain, yeah, I think you're saying, yes. Okay, right. yep. thank you. Thank you all for participating. This was a lot of fun. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. This activity is certified by the Medical College of Wisconsin. This activity is co-provided with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GBV860. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals.